Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. In this family, we love a love story, and we love a grief story, and every grief story is a love story. You don't grieve what you don't love. But for now, this is a love story. And it starts in my favorite place for a love story to start. The point where you're sure you just cannot, will not, could not possibly ever find love. That's exactly where Oliver was his sophomore year of college. I know. His sophomore year of college? Really? That was when Oliver was sure he would never find love? Sounds a little dramatic. But at this point... Oliver has never dated, he has never kissed anyone, and the people he goes to college with are pairing up and maybe even mating for life. He goes to a conservative college filled with people who share his Mormon faith. It's absolutely not weird for him to feel like by now he should have found his big, true love. I saw two of my siblings uh, meet their, uh, well, my brother met his wife, my sister met her husband. Um, I saw them get married. I saw my roommates, uh, my college roommates, uh, fall in love and um, or have crushes or whatever and go on dates. And uh, my missionary companions from my Mormon mission, I was starting to get wedding invitations. I started going to weddings. And it sent me into like this, I don't know, this well, I guess what I would call depression, but, you know, you go through these steps of, you know, and so after the mission for quote-unquote normal people, um, after the mission you get married, you have children, you know, you have your corporate job, you pay for uh, orthodontists and whatever, you know. But those steps don't apply to Oliver. Oliver has completed one year of college and his mission trip, where he traveled to the Netherlands to spread the word of Mormonism. And on that mission, he had a realization. Not that he's gay. He's known that forever. I've always been very honest about my identity or about, uh, not to other people, but to myself. It's like, I know I like men. I know I'm attracted to men. And um, I always thought, well, if... God is the Mormon God, this is going to be taken away from me, and I'm going to be okay. And it was on my mission when I sort of had this moment, like this light bulb going up, where I realized this is not going to go away. And I accepted it. I was like, you know, this is this is just who I am. And so on my mission, I had this moment where I realized that of all the checklist steps that you go through as a Mormon— this is the end of it. I'm going to go home for my mission, and I'm not going to do anything else that other people do. And at the time, I didn't realize how obedient I would remain or whatever. And since I was still at BYU, I had to remain obedient because you have to um, abide by their code of conduct. Abiding by the code meant going back to BYU, finishing his degree, going to church, and it meant not dating men not expressing that attraction. Oliver's family doesn't know that he's gay. They expect him to study law, to find a girl, to get married and settle down. But there's another path that is calling to him. The musical theater program. And when he gets back from his mission, he secretly auditions. And I got in, I got accepted, and um, it was a very big deal telling my parents about it that I I got accepted and I this is what I want to do so but my parents are great people they came around and they said okay well do what, what you think you should be doing so I studied musical theater and 
Well, I hate to be stereotypical, but let's be honest. 90% of the guys in there were gay. <laughs> <laughs> the theater program is where Oliver comes alive. He's doing what he loves, even if he's far from being loved, far from having a love of his own. I remember the first time I... Uh, I, 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 it was after an audition, and um, I needed a ride home. I didn't have a car at the time, and um, this guy from the audition gave me a ride home, and we had a nice little chat and whatever, and he was very sort of like this extrovert, super gay guy, like, oh, my God, whatever. He actually looked like a clean-cut Mormon, but he just had like this, you know, very extroverted gay personality, which is great, you know, good for him, living in Utah, having, you know, the courage to be that way. And um, we we pulled up in my parking lot and at my apartment, and we kept talking for a little bit. And and that's when he um, said, well, Oliver, you're, you're gay, right? And it was the first time I admitted it, like I said it out loud. Yeah, I, I'm gay. And it was like this weight was lifted off me. And at the same time, as the weight was lifted off me, like I'm being honest about who I am, another weight was put on me because I wasn't allowed to be gay. And the thing is, as an actor, you you have to you have to be honest with yourself. You can't. Actually, one of my acting teachers said, "You have to um, you have to always meet yourself where you are." in order to portray whatever you need to portray. But it's not going to be possible until you're honest with yourself. Like, this is who I am. This is where I'm at. This is what I feel. And from here, I'm going to go on and be whatever I need to be on stage. So Oliver starts to be honest with himself. He's not going to pretend that he isn't a full person, a person who wants love and connection. The year is 2003, and Facebook is not a thing. Smartphones aren't in all our pockets, so Oliver goes to the computer, and he gets online, and he goes to some website that's about making friends. And it was gay, but it was not Grindr, <laughs> but it was um, <laughs> but it was a very um, premature Facebook thing. Um, you were allowed to have nine pictures on your profile. Um, they had to be clean, so, you know, like, I mean, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't Grindr. Um, and the profile was very sort of bullet point. You entered your name, uh, your age, your whatever, your location. Oliver enters his location. And I was like, oh, look at all the BYU music dance theater students on here. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um... But the thing is, it, w- it was safe because you really weren't outing yourself, but you, you were just on there. You were trying to create connections. Oliver wanted connections outside of his university and his faith. And after a few days, he finds it. So um, the way this website worked is that you were, um, like it showed you, okay, this person, you know this person because you have this connection with this person. So this person knows this person who knows you kind of thing. And that's when I saw Jamie's profile. Jamie's beautiful. Dark, gorgeous hair, beautiful eyes. Oliver sends him a message, and Jamie replies. And he said that he was... um, in town visiting his family, but that he wasn't actually living in the city, and um, but that his family was. And um, it was just like this amazing, oh my gosh, this is right. This is like, we had enough in common and everything that we didn't have in common was compatible. You know, for a, a few days, we would go back and forth and message. But after that, I mean, I sort of, like, dropped the ball. It's like, well, he doesn't live here. Um, And I'm not allowed to date men, so it doesn't really matter, you know. It was a fluke that they'd even connected. Jamie is just passing through, and even though their messages felt to Oliver like he was talking with someone he had known forever, 
it's just not meant to be. He and Jamie fall out of touch, and Oliver tries to balance who he is with what is allowed and expected of him within his faith environment. There were guys that I kind of liked, but they weren't, like, I wasn't able to go on a BYU date. I wasn't able to take them to the school dance. I wasn't able to, you know, like, actually do that. So being on a date with another guy meant, all right, let's go hang out at Borders Books, you know, at the Riverwoods Mall, or let's go to the movie, and if we run into someone, it's like, oh, this is my friend so-and-so, and and we're just hanging out. But it wasn't... Yeah, we're going to Borders, okay? (laughs) Everybody goes to Borders, like, get over it. <laughs> we just wanted to see a movie. So here we are. This is my friend so-and-so, and we're at a movie. So it's, it's difficult to say, oh, yeah, I went on dates. But they weren't dates. They weren't, they weren't what other people were experiencing as dates. They were just a fake date. It was just kind of like me trying to make up for not being able to date. The school year ends, and that summer, Oliver heads to Europe to visit his parents, who live in Switzerland. I was at my boring office job, you know, as a summer job. And I thought, well, I'm going to get back on that website and see, well, does it work here? You know, are are there people around here? And so I logged on into my account and whatever, and the first thing that flashes up is that Jamie was nearby, Nearby, as in nearby Switzerland. What, I ask you, are the chances? Can this be real? And so I messaged him. I was like, "What? wait, I know you from Utah. I'm in Switzerland. What are you doing so close by? And he told me that he had um, taken a, himself, taken a summer job, um, teaching a, a youth camp, um, teaching English, and... Um, and he, and, and he liked to travel a lot, and he actually spoke several languages as well, which is a thing we had in common. And um, he was like, well, I'm, I'm close by. And by close by, it wasn't, you know, within miles, but it was the next, uh, a close by town in France, close to Geneva. And um, I thought, this is just crazy. Like, oh my gosh, like how, <laughs> how weird that I meet you in Utah online, but now I'm across an ocean, and you're here. It's bonkers. It's romantic. It is time to take this relationship to the next level. The two of them exchange phone numbers. And eventually, they connect. That was the first time I heard his voice. And it was just melting like it was so soothing and it wasn't even just his voice it was the way he expressed himself the way he talked the pace at which he talked um it was just oh it was so great what did you talk on the phone about how long did you talk it was just like we talked about our growing up mormon um we talked about Um, our experiences and how different they were. My experience was that I was always a very good Mormon kid, that I always, you know, went by the rules and did everything. And he told me about his story that he actually realized very early on that Mormonism wasn't for him and that he left, um, that he rebelled against the Mormon church very early on and which created tension in his family. So again, it was like this, oh, we have so much in common and yet it's so different Jamie and Oliver spend hours on the phone, but they never meet up. They're relatively close, but not really close. They're just far enough to make it impossible for the two of them to actually get together with their jobs and their lives. So it's a phone relationship until Jamie goes to Eastern Europe and they lose touch again. The summer ends and Oliver goes back to school. And a few months into the school year... I was feeling a little, you know, like I just wanted a little bit of human connection, and so I logged back on and put my location in, and again it flashes. Jamie is nearby. 
And I thought, okay. <laughs> so I messaged him and I was like, this is just a little crazy right now. And no more excuses. We have to get together. And um, so we arranged, and he said he was only in town for uh, the rest of the week. He was visiting his family. So he wasn't here for very long. And I was just like, I don't care if I have to skip classes, if I have to, you know, cancel everything, but we have to get together. This is just, this is just too crazy. And I remember it was a Wednesday and um, I decided I could skip all my morning classes, which were um, jazz dance, modern dance, and ballet. <laughs> You're like, catch me up later. Tell me what I missed. <laughs> and... Um, and I, and I thought, well, as long as I make it to my voice lesson, which was very expensive, so I was like, I can't miss my voice lesson. As long as I don't miss my voice lesson, I will meet you wherever you want. Guys, it's happening, and we are going to take a little break here. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. We're back, and Jamie and Oliver are finally going to meet up. They've traded secrets and dreams. They've stayed up late on the phone talking about life. They've exchanged countless emails, and they've missed each other on two continents. And now they're back in the same orbit. They can, and absolutely will, meet in real life at Starbucks. Which, again, was like a forbidden place to go because Mormons don't drink coffee. And so I, I drove to the Starbucks, and I'm, like, so scared because, like, oh, my gosh, I'm walking into a Starbucks, and I'm a BYU student and whatever. And um, that is the first time I saw him. He was sitting at a table in the corner, and I thought, oh, you're gorgeous. And I was so intimidated, and I was so nervous. And this is, like, you have to, you have to imagine, like, at this point, I'm a— 12, 13-year-old teenager going through the emotions of dating for the first time. And I sat down and I ordered a mint tea because I was a law-abiding BYU student. <laughs> so I had my, um, my herbal tea and I sat there and, and I thought, well, I have plenty of time, whatever. And we ended up talking the entire day I skipped my voice lesson I skipped everything the entire Oliver. day I know <laughs> the entire day I sat there talking with him and just exchanging and it was it was so effortless that there was no like oh well okay there's a I don't know where to go next I don't know what to say next and sometimes there was silence or pauses but those pauses didn't feel uncomfortable it was just like all right let's be quiet for a minute or two and it didn't matter and um i remember the sweetest thing that i remember like the first physical contact i had with him i was holding my mint tea cup and he grabbed my finger and held my finger just like I guess someone would hold someone's hand, but he just held my finger and he said, I'd really like to see you again. I wish I could describe it. And it wasn't like, again, it, it, it was so, it wasn't even like he grabbed my hand. He literally grabbed my index finger and held it in between his fingers. And I wish I could explain what it feels like 
But it's one of those things you only know what it feels like when it actually happens to you. The best way I can describe it is I hope it happens to you sometime and that you'll feel it. You'll know what it feels like. Oliver is an actor, and he has been cast in a show. He has rehearsal that night, but he and Jamie really, really, really want to see each other. He can't skip rehearsal. So if he and Jamie are going to have their first real date, Oliver's first real date, he's going to have to have Jamie pick him up right from rehearsal. I'll be wearing rehearsal clothes. Maybe I'll be sweaty. I don't know. Like, I don't know what we're doing. But it just didn't matter. It was just, I, like, I, as much as I, I mean, now I would be like, oh my gosh, my hair needs to be perfect. Um, what cologne am I wearing? What's the perfect outfit? Let me go shopping really quick for the perfect outfit. But that night, it was just so organic and normal that I didn't, I didn't care. I, I, I didn't care because... It just so much felt like it didn't matter. Like it was just going to be what it's going to be. And so we went and drove in the canyon and um, we parked somewhere um, with a beautiful view and he kissed me. And it was just perfect. And we kissed for Five hours, I think. It was... I mean, we didn't kiss for five hours straight, but um, again, it was this thing with like, let's take a break and just hold each other, or let's just talk for, you know, another half hour. And, and it was five o'clock in the morning when he drove me back to my apartment and um, he parked on the curb and we kissed for another three hours and it was eight o'clock in the morning and I thought, oh shit, I have to go to class. So I went inside and um, showered and changed and got dressed and went to class and I was so tired but I just felt so happy and I felt so happy because it was something that I had never experienced before. But I felt so stupid because, oh, this is what my roommates do all the time. They go on a, they don't go on two dates every weekend. They, they do all that. But this is the first time that it happened for me. Jamie has to leave in a few days. So... The two of them take another hike, they make out on a mountaintop, and then it's time for Jamie to leave town. I thought, well, this is how it always goes. Um, it's going to be over. I'm not going to see him again and whatever. And um, I hugged him and we held each other. And he said, we'll see each other again. This is not, this is not the end. Their relationship moves on to email. Tons and tons of emails. The kind so special that even seeing that name in your inbox feels like receiving a present. Like you don't want to open it right away because then that feeling will be over. Oliver is still in school and Jamie, who is just four years older, is working. They see each other when Jamie comes to visit his family in Utah, but only privately. Jamie's family knows about Oliver, but... They prefer that the relationship be private. And Oliver's family has no idea about Jamie. We always stayed in contact, and the beautiful thing about the relationship was that we could go months without speaking, but when we spoke again, it was like we'd never lost touch. And we weren't losing touch. It was just we were just living our lives, and we were busy. There was one time we... Um, we went for a drive, and um, I was playing, of course, cast record Broadway cast recordings in my car because it's my car and I choose. And 
I was playing this cast recording of um, a Jason Robert Brown musical called uh, The Last Five Years. And uh, there's a song in the musical called The Next Ten Minutes. And the song, The, the Next Ten Minutes, is about the two lead characters getting engaged to each other and the husband uh, proposing to the woman and saying, this is very scary, but just, will, will you be my wife for the next 10 minutes? And Jimmy was just so touched by this, by these lyrics. And um, it sort of became our, um, not theme, but like our, it became his tagline in a way. And whenever I would talk to him about how stressed I was about school or how stressed I was about an audition or how stressed I was about opening night or how stressed I was about closing night or whatever it was. He always said, um, you just have to get through the next 10 minutes. hard to define what this relationship was. Jamie and Oliver loved each other, and part of that love was that they weren't really together. There were so many reasons not to be. They didn't live in the same place. Jamie didn't want Oliver spending his college years in an exclusive long-distance relationship. It's such a beautiful relationship. It's such an intense emotional relationship. How at all do you define it or not define it and and what is Jamie to you well he was or is what I firmly believed throughout my Mormon mission and beyond he is what I thought would never happen to me it's like, I mean, as I mean, as stupid as it sounds, he was, he was the miracle that I thought I would never be allowed to experience. And when something like that happens to you, you, I'm assuming you sort of want to shout it on the rooftops. You're so excited, you want to talk about it and tell everyone. I mean. All my friends would tell me, like, oh, I just got this new girlfriend. I'm so excited. Or, oh, I just got engaged. And let's go shopping for the wedding list and whatever. But to me, it was like this. I always had to sort of keep it very quiet. And I think it's sort of what made Jamie more meaningful. It was, I mean, again, I always go back to show tunes because that's who I am. But there's a show tune that Liza Minnelli sings. And... um the lyrics from the song are, when it all comes through, it's a quiet thing. And when everyone was shouting how they were seeing someone, that they got engaged, that, wow, everything's turning out for them. For me, Jamie was, oh, that quiet thing. A quiet thing is so beautiful something you keep just for yourself. But it's quiet for another reason, too. Because Oliver's parents still don't know about Jamie. And Jamie's parents know Jamie is seeing someone. But Jamie was like, well, Oliver and I had a bottle of wine at his house and we just cuddled on the couch watching a movie. And I was just like, Jamie, shut up. Like, <laughs> can you just tell your mom, I hung out at Oliver's house. That's enough. That's all the information she needs. But Jamie sort of um, always felt that need to sort of like, I'm going to provoke them. It's 2006 now, and Jamie and Oliver have known each other for three years. Oliver has graduated from college, and he enrolled in beauty school so he can support himself as a stylist when he eventually moves to New York City. But for now, he's still in Utah. And it's Christmas. And Oliver can't get time off of beauty school to go visit his parents in Switzerland. I ended up being stuck in Utah um, my last Christmas of beauty school. And I, I couldn't, I normally would have um, gone to be with my family in Europe. 
Um, but I was stuck at home, and um, it was the first Christmas, except for the Christmases on my mission, where I was going to be by myself. And I was very sad about it, and I um, I tried to think of things to do and whatever. And um, Jamie said that he was going to be visiting his parents, and he was going to talk to them. And um, he did talk to his parents, and he said, well... Um, Oliver's going to be all alone for Christmas. Can can I invite him over? And his parents said, no, your siblings are going to be here. All your nieces and nephews are going to be here. Uh, this is going to be too awkward and too strange. No, it's it, we're just not okay with that. And it started this argument with, well, we're not going to be making out on the couch, um, but this is someone who doesn't have a place to go for Christmas. Can Can he come over? And his parents insisted, no, it's not going to happen. And um, and I understood. It's not personal because they don't know Oliver. So Oliver understood. But Jamie did not. Jamie was upset. Jamie said that, well, if, um, if Oliver's not welcome here, then I'm not going to be here either. And he came to my apartment in Utah. We made some dinner. We went to a movie that we both didn't like, and it was fun because we got to joke about it. And he spent Christmas Day with me. And again, it was one of those magical moments where, like, someone loves me enough to do that for me. And for most people, it, it sounds like something so normal. I mean, for my siblings, maybe it sounds normal for their... For their um, uh, um, spouses. But for me, it was just so special. It was just so, like, it was just so unique and so valuable. Their relationship is like this. Big, meaningful displays of love and then time apart. They still live in different cities. A few months later, Oliver was done with beauty school and moved to New York City to pursue his dream. Jamie was still working in Boston, and they were still in touch. They talked, they emailed, they see each other when they can, and they also see other people. I mean, it was such a real relationship that I was able to tell him, like, oh, well, I met this guy, and I went on a date with him, and and I'd be able to tell him the details, or, like, this is what we did, and this is how it ended. And there were a few people that I went out with where... It didn't end the way I wanted it to end, and I was, well, heartbroken, so to say, and I was able to call Jamie and tell him, yeah, so I went out with this guy, and um, and I'm really disappointed because I really liked him, and it didn't work out. And Jamie always said, well, it didn't work out because this guy wasn't me, and someday it will be me. And it was just the most healing words, the most soothing words, and how going through life's disappointments and rejections, he just knew how to take it away. In December 2007, it's Christmas time again. Oliver is in New York. Jamie is in Boston for the holiday, but he tells Oliver that he's coming to New York City for New Year's and he wants to spend it with Oliver. He wants Oliver to come out with all of Jamie's friends and celebrate the new year. Oliver hates New Year's, but he loves Jamie. So he says, yes, I will go out on the most annoying night of the year for you. I met him at this restaurant, and I met his friends, and we had just a really great time just catching up. He looked so gorgeous. He was wearing this white button-down shirt, and I always told him, like, oh, you should let me cut your hair. It would be cuter if it's a little shorter here, a little more styled this way, and he never did let me. And again, this is where it goes back into type it's like oh i i wish his haircut were different 
But I remember because it was him, I just, I loved his haircut. They passed some um, bubbly around midnight, and Jamie hated sparkling wine. He was actually a very snobbish red wine drinker. And um, he poured it into my glass, and he was saying, like, I know you like it. I hate it. You can have it. It was shortly before midnight. He um, recalled the time when we were driving in my car and that I was playing the song by Jason Robert Brown. The next 10 minutes. And he said, it's almost the new year. I know it's freaky. But for the next 10 minutes, will you officially be my boyfriend? And I thought, well, of course. Like, this is what I've been dreaming of for the last, ever since I met you at Starbucks. And he said, you only have to commit to 10 minutes. But you know, after 10 minutes, I'm going to ask you for another 10 minutes. And then I'll ask you for another 10 hours. And then I'll ask you for another 10 days or whatever. So at the stroke of midnight, you're kissing your boyfriend. Your boyfriend. For the next 10 minutes, and the next 10 minutes, and the next, and the next, Jamie and Oliver are officially, officially, officially together. And we are officially taking a commercial break. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. And we're back. Jamie and Oliver are in love. And they're together. After five years, they're going to make this work. The next day, the 1st of 2008, Jamie and his friends are going out to a house on Long Island before Jamie flies out to Utah to see his family. Oliver can't get time off work, so he tells Jamie, go with your friends, I'll see you when you get back from Utah. He even books his trip up to Boston, the first trip where he'd officially see his official boyfriend. Jamie heads off to Long Island, and Oliver goes back to his apartment. I just fell onto my um, inflated mattress and that moment of realization that everything that I thought would never happen to me is happening to me now. I was so happy. I started crying. And it didn't make sense, like, why am I crying if everything that I want to happen is happening? Um, I went back to work, um, and um, I didn't tell anyone yet. I didn't know, I didn't know how to process it, really. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to do with it. It was so foreign to me. It was so new to me. It was so... Strange, I didn't know what to do with it. And um, a few days later, two, three days later, Jamie called um, my phone. I was at work, so I, he left a message, and he said he was at the airport flying to Utah, and the message said he was so happy that he'd seen me and that we had been able to be open with each other and sort of, like, make decisions, or I forget exactly what words he used, but... Um, and he said that he would see me soon. A few days pass, 
and Oliver is missing Jamie. Usually he tries not to reach out to him when he's with his family, but hey, this is his boyfriend now. So on his way home from work, he calls him. He calls his boyfriend. And his mother answered, and she knew who I was. Jamie's mother had never met Oliver, but she told him, oh, we've heard so much about you in the past few days, which, wow, that feels amazing. It's real. And I told her, I, oh, I just didn't want to interrupt family time. I was, um, I would call back later, and if she could tell Jamie that I called, and the phone went silent. And she said, he passed away this morning. Jamie had suffered an epileptic seizure. He'd been rushed to the hospital, he'd been in a coma, and he didn't wake up. Oliver's shocked. Jamie's mother says she'll let Oliver know about funeral arrangements. She'll send him some of Jamie's things. Oliver hangs up the phone. It was as if, like, I was suddenly covered in this bubble and that I wasn't feeling anything. And the only thought that I had was, I need to get home before I feel anything. And that's what I did. I just walked, and um, the way I had to walk home from my salon to my apartment, I had to walk through um, Central Park South, where all the horse-drawn carriages are for the tourists. And one of the drivers yelled after me and said, like, Something like, hey, man, be careful, you drunk. (laughs) And I wasn't, but I guess that's how I was. I was this zombie walking and just thinking, just get home. At home, in this tiny, filthy apartment with an inflatable mattress, Oliver waits for more news to hear about the funeral arrangements. Oliver is alone, grieving a man that nobody really knew he loved even his really good friends. You know when you're in a relationship and you don't really know where it's going and you don't really know what the outcome is going to be and you don't really, you you know, you you don't necessarily want to put yourself out there and be like, guess what, I'm with this great guy and we love each other because what if it doesn't work out? And I think that it was the mind space I was in. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to ruin it. I didn't want to jinx it. In any other circumstances, if Oliver had lost a boyfriend of many years, one who had met all of his friends, one he had a photo of on his station at work, if he'd lost a wife, a fiancé, the grief industrial complex would roar to life. There would be cards, leaves of absence from work, a memorial for him to plan, friends making sure he wasn't alone. But this thing, this quiet thing he's lost on his own, is now a quiet ache, a quiet grief. To share it with his family means coming out to them. To share it with his friends means trying to catch them up on years and years of a slow-burning love that just finally burst into flame. But Oliver tries. His parents are still in Switzerland, too far to come scoop him up from the floor and hold him and let him weep, and too far to physically turn a cold shoulder. So Oliver emails his father. And he tells him everything about Jamie and their relationship, about Jamie's death. Of course, we're Mormons, so we don't swear. But I remember the very last sentence I wrote in that email was, I'm hurting so fucking bad. Oliver does not know what kind of reply to expect. He's just fed his father two huge pieces of information. That he's gay and that he's grieving. It takes a few days to hear back from his dad. Oliver opens the email. 
There's no anger, but there's no comfort either. It was this um, very Mormon sort of, you're going to see him again. He is in a better place now. His, um, his challenges are taken away. I forget the words they used, but it was sort of along those lines. And, um, and the more I was reading this, the more I was heartbroken because I knew it came from a very, very loving space a very loving intention, but it was hurting me. It was hurting me to... I knew that when they said that Jamie was freed of all his challenges, that in their Mormon way, they were saying, Jamie's no longer gay. And I was thinking, he's dead again. It's cute that you think I'm going to see him again. He's not going to want me. And it was the first time I told my parents that I'd be most comfortable if we just didn't talk for a while. And it wasn't because I was angry at them. But it was because... It was hurting me, and I needed to heal before I could listen to what they had to say. Or because maybe I didn't want to hear what they had to say. It's very difficult to reject um, something that's so well meant and so lovingly meant. But to admit that it's not doing you any good... Jamie's mother never contacts Oliver again. He doesn't go to the funeral. He never receives any of Jamie's belongings. Their relationship is just gone. It felt like I had played with fire, that I had been burned, and that now I wasn't allowed to complain about it because I'd been warned. And as much as I thought that I wasn't deserving of the relationship or this connection. Now I wasn't allowed to grieve about it either. Oliver was back at work just a few days after Jamie died, and just a few weeks after their relationship had finally become official. I was completely just shaken and I only shared it with my salon manager and another hairstylist that I um, connected with really well. What got me through it was, I'm just going to stay silent about this. I need to keep it to myself. I'm going to go home. I'm going to drink a bottle of wine. <laughs> and I'm just going to get over it by myself. But he didn't get over it. That's not how it works. It's been 12 years, and talking about Jamie still makes Oliver smile. It still makes him cry. And I thought about their theme songs, how their relationship began with a request for Oliver to be Jamie's for the next 10 minutes and 10 minutes more, and how grief is one of those things that feels as big as love just as immeasurable and just as hard to explain. You can't outrun it, but you can live with it. Ten minutes at a time. That's the way through those intense early days. It's the way through the disappointment that the people you'd hoped would comfort you cannot. And the anger that you've been left out of remembering the person whose love has meant so much to you. Because 12 years later, the pain of losing Jamie is different. And so is the pain Oliver felt from Jamie's mom. And the thing that I realize is that people need the um, condolences that they're used to. They need to um, be reassured of the person they lost was who they wanted them to be more than the person they were. 
And I think I came to terms with it that they're they're suffering in their own way and they're allowed to do that. And if their portrayal of him didn't include me, that's also okay. And I don't want to take that away from them. I know how much it hurts to lose someone. And you try to come to terms with it. And I was okay with it not including me. Oliver did, eventually, get to Utah to say goodbye to Jamie. I finally found his his grave and I put the flowers down in that little, you know, flower thing they have at the thing. (laughs) And um, I sat there and I thought, okay, great. I got to see his, his tombstone. I got to, you know, sit here. But it doesn't equal the memories I have of him. It doesn't it doesn't equal what I remember of him. It doesn't equal the beautiful memories I have of him spending Christmas with me, of going on a hike with me, of our phone calls and our weird emails and whatever. I'm just sitting at a graveside right now and it's not making me feel better. I'd rather just sit at home and remember the good moments and listen to the next 10 minutes. This is Nora McInerney, and this has been Terrible. Thanks for asking. Our producer is Marcel Malikibu. Production help from Jaka Maldonado-Medina. Our project manager is Hannah Meacock-Ross. Jordan Turgeon is our digital producer. We got help on this episode from the wonderful Sasha Azlani, and we are so grateful to her. This episode was mixed by John Miller. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson. We are a production of American Public Media. Okay, bye guys. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.